the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. City WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Download the Faith Talk Tampa app or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre-recorded. The God who created the universe and everything in it can't possibly be confined to residing in a building in the city of Jerusalem. God is bigger than that. He transcends all of creation. And like Stephen, I would challenge you to expand your thinking about God. It's always a temptation for all of us to think very small thoughts about God, to think only God in our world, so that you don't just think of him as someone who exists in this building on Sunday mornings, and that's the extent of all of your consciousness about his presence. That's not right. I remind you that God is omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere in the universe. There is no place in the world that God is not present. And we've seen many times, and David makes this very clear in Psalm 139, where he says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. David said, if I wanted to, I couldn't escape from you because you're everywhere. coming to the end of his defense on today's program, and he is making a powerful point, one that we would do well to remember. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse, where our teacher, Pastor Steve Kreloff, is teaching Acts chapters 6, 7, and 8. This very brief segment of scripture is really all we know about Stephen. However, if you have been following in this series, you have realized there is far more here than just a brief reading of the passage would indicate. As Stephen is getting close to resting his defense, he is about to make all the religious leaders uncomfortable. Mm, probably more than that. Actually, he's going to make them very angry because he is going to... You know, I'm going to stop there and let Pastor Steve tell us what's coming today. Here he is. This is a tremendous point that Stephen is making because he is challenging the traditional thinking of his day about God as well, I might add, as the thinking associated today with those involved in the Temple Institute. I read you that because I want you to see that this is still the thinking of many. And what he's saying is that the God who created the universe and everything in it can't possibly be confined to residing in a building in the city of Jerusalem. God is bigger than that. He transcends all of creation. And like Stephen, I would challenge you to expand your thinking about God. It's always a temptation for all of us to think very small thoughts about God, to think only God in our world, so that you don't just think of him as someone who exists in this building on Sunday mornings, and that's the extent of all of your consciousness 
about his presence. That's not right. I remind you that God is omnipresent, meaning that he is everywhere in the universe. There is no place in the world that God is not present. And we've seen many times, and David makes this very clear in Psalm 139, where he says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. David said, if I wanted to, I couldn't escape from you because you're everywhere. Therefore, wherever you find yourself, it is always, and I know I've said this before, but it is worth repeating, it is always appropriate that in that location you worship God. It's sacred wherever you are, because that's where God is, and you are a believer to worship him. You see, the temple in Jerusalem, that was just a symbol of God's presence. It wasn't his permanent place of residence where he was confined like a prisoner, and he couldn't escape. Not at all. This is why he appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. He was with Joseph in Egypt, with Moses in Midian. And he's with you, too, here in this building, but also when you leave this building, And when you get in your car, and wherever you drive to, and at your home, and at your work, he is everywhere you are because he is the omnipresent creator. As I've mentioned before, there's always a tendency in going on a tour to Israel to think that being in the land of Israel makes things more sacred and more holy. And you know what? People get very excited, and I do too, and they should, when we visit a place where we know that Jesus has been here. There's no question. Now, some places there are questions, is the right location? But there are some places that there is no question he was here. But the truth is that while Jesus was here in that place 2,000 years ago, he's everywhere we are right now. He's right here in this auditorium this morning. In fact, if you know him as your Lord and Savior, then he's more than right here in this auditorium. He's living within you by the Holy Spirit, because as Paul said two times in 1 Corinthians 3 and 6, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you want a temple, you're it if you know Christ. So think big about God. See him for who he reveals himself to be so immense that even the highest heaven cannot contain him. Do you realize what that means? That's what the word of God says. Even the highest heaven cannot contain him. It means that as vast as the universe is, God is vaster because he is infinite. If you've ever seen pictures in outer space, just think. Our God made that and he's more immense than that. Take it to the edge of the universe, wherever that may be, and God is greater. Now, with these words about the temple, Stephen has finished giving his defense before the Sanhedrin. He has presented his case that he has not blasphemed Moses. He has not blasphemed the law of Moses. He has not blasphemed God or God's temple. So now what? Well, now Stephen changes roles from being a defendant to being a prosecuting attorney as he accuses the Sanhedrin of being rebellious to God and disobedient to his law. So we move now from his defense statements about the temple to his accusation against the Sanhedrin. Verses 51 through 53. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. 
Since we have already looked at these verses in past studies, we don't need to spend much time on them today. However, it is important to understand that while these words seem to come out of nowhere, and you may be wondering, why would Stephen say this? Why would he speak like this? I want you to understand, Stephen has actually been laying the groundwork for these words throughout his speech. See, Stephen's strong and accusatory words, they should not have come as a shock to the men of the Sanhedrin, because what he tells them here about themselves, it's everything he's just accused Israel of. And they're the leaders of Israel. So, for example, in telling them about Israel's rebellion in worshiping a golden calf, the men of the Sanhedrin, being familiar with the scriptures, would have remembered from the Old Testament that at the time that this took place, God specifically called Israel stiff-necked, which means obstinate, stubborn. He said this in Exodus 32, 9, The Lord God said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Obstinate means stiff-necked. It could be translated that way. And being stiff-necked, understand this, there's an imagery here. It's the imagery of oxen or horses refusing to yield to the yoke that the farmer is trying to put around their necks. In other words, they're adamant about not submitting, unbending, determined to rebel, disobedient. They are stiff-necked. They will not bow and bend their stubborn wills. And now Stephen is accusing the Sanhedrin of being the same as their idolatrous, stiff-necked ancestors. Though hiding behind the facade of being religious and pious men, these men were still stiff-necked in their defiance and refusal to bow to the authority of the Lord over them. And then he moved on in calling them uncircumcised in heart and ear. Stephen is simply echoing what God said about the Jewish people in several places. Specifically, Leviticus 26, verse 41, Jeremiah 6:10. He said that their hearts and their ears were uncircumcised, meaning that they were just like unclean pagans, just like the uncircumcised, just like uncircumcised Gentiles, totally unspiritual, unresponsive, hostile, rebellious towards him. And that's exactly what Israel was throughout her Old Testament. As Stephen has said, they worshiped the false gods of the host of heaven. That is, they worshiped the planets, the stars, the moon. And they did this, God said, until the day that he removed them from the land of Israel to pagan Babylon. So it wasn't just one generation. It wasn't just for a few years. It was a long time. It was their whole history. And the Sanhedrin were still just as uncircumcised in heart and ears as their ancestors because though they were physically Jewish, they were pagans at heart, totally unresponsive to God. And in telling them they are always resisting the Holy Spirit, Stephen is claiming that the men of the Sanhedrin were no different from Old Testament Israel who rejected and rebelled and murmured and complained against Moses in spite of the fact that God's Spirit was the one who was at work in Moses empowering him to lead and to deliver Israel. And in addition, they were just like their ancestral fathers in that while they persecuted and killed the Old Testament prophets who announced the coming of Messiah, they, the Sanhedrin, they actually took it a step further. They murdered the Messiah, the righteous one, Jesus Christ. And in addition to all this, notice what else Stephen accuses them of in verse 53. 
He said, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now, ironically, Stephen tells the men of the Sanhedrin that although he's on trial, Stephen's on trial for speaking against the law, they said, the truth is that they are the guilty ones. They're the ones who are disobeying the law. And what he means by this, note this, is not simply that they have disregarded obedience to the law in general, though that's true, but that's not what he means. He means that they have specifically disobeyed the law concerning the taking of an innocent life because in killing Jesus Christ, they have murdered the righteous one. They're guilty of that. They have broken the law. And with these stunning words of condemnation, Stephen's defense has now come to a close. Whether or not Stephen intended to say anything more, we will never know because after hearing his accusations against them of being stiff-necked, pagans at heart, persecutors of the prophets, and law-breaking killers of the Messiah, the Sanhedrin were understandably enraged at Stephen. Before we look at their reaction, their rage to Stephen's words, I want to just pause here to point out something that is important that we understand about Stephen's speech. And that is, this is not intended by the Lord to be a model for how you and I should witness to unsaved people. Now, it ought to go without saying that in sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, it is not appropriate to accuse them of being stiff-necked pagans who always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, you're laughing, at least some of you, but I feel compelled to say this, lest some go out and do this. Listen, this may be true of the person you're talking to. In fact, I would say it is true. It will be true because that's the way all unbelievers are. However, you don't win anyone to Christ by speaking in a negative, derogatory manner about them. Now, you obviously need to be somewhat negative. You need to tell them they're sinners. You need to tell them that Christ's death was for sinners on the cross, but you don't denounce them in words that alienate them and make them defensive. So, of course, a valid question to ask at this point is, if that's the case, then why did Stephen speak like this to the Sanhedrin? Listen closely. Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin is not intended to be a gospel presentation to them in the sense of explaining the message of salvation for the purpose of leading them to faith in Christ. Although he speaks of Christ as the righteous one, I want you to notice he doesn't explain the meaning of the cross. He doesn't tell them they need to repent and need to trust Christ for salvation. You see, Stephen is not witnessing to these men in the sense of presenting the plan of salvation. But rather, watch this, he is making a strong statement to them as the leaders of Israel about Israel's unbelief. That's the reason that Luke, who is the human writer of the book of Acts, gives so much attention and so much space to Stephen's words. Because as one writer put it, and I quote, Stephen is bearing testimony against Jewish unbelief before The gospel proceeds beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and ultimately the end of the earth. In other words, folks, this is God's official pronouncement on Jewish unbelief. Unbelief that started in the Old Testament and culminated in the rejection and the killing of the Messiah. And by this, God is announcing in the book of Acts, historically, redemptively, is that he is about to make a significant change by taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is precisely what we're going to see 
when we finish Acts 7 and move into Acts 8 and beyond, the gospel will go. Yes, there'll still be a message to the Jewish people. And someday, the Bible says, during the tribulation, Israel will be converted to Christ. But God's attention and focus will be turned primarily to Gentile lands. You're going to see this in the book of Acts. And so, be careful. Don't witness to anyone the way Stephen spoke to the Sanhedrin. But what we do is we learn from Stephen's words. What do we learn? We learn of the nature and the tragedy of Jewish unbelief about their Messiah and God's mercy then in opening the door for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. And it is pure mercy. God didn't have to do that, but he did. So with these accusatory words against the Sanhedrin, Stephen's defense has officially ended. As I said a few moments ago, whether or not Stephen intended to say anything more, we'll never know. Because after hearing his accusation against them, the Sanhedrin react violently, which we read about in the following verses. Look first at verse 54. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. As one might expect, Stephen's words elicit a furious reaction from the men of the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us that they were cut to the quick. What does that mean? Well, literally it means that they were sawn in half. They were sawn in half. In other words, Stephen's words ripped these men apart, exposing them for what they really were. Not men of God, not devout followers of the true God, but rather stiff-necked, religious hypocrites, guilty of blasphemy. That's who they were. And because they were now exposed for what they really were, rather than repenting, which is what they should have done, they were so livid that they began, we read, gnashing their teeth at Stephen, which means that in their frustration, coupled with intense anger, they started grinding their teeth at him. In other words, They were absolutely furious at Stephen and vented their fury by grinding their teeth at him like snarling wild animals. This is a horrifying display of hostile rage. But listen, the Bible describes this same reaction on the part of unsaved people in hell. People who are so filled with fury against God that for all of eternity... The Bible says they will be gnashing their teeth at him. Jesus said these words in Matthew 13, 41, 42. He said, at the end of the age, the son of man, that's him. He'll send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and they'll throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, don't think for one moment that those who go to hell will feel bad For their sin. Don't think that they will feel so bad that they want to repent, but they just can't, or that they'll regret how rebellious they were to the Lord and feel remorse because they blew the opportunity to accept Christ. Not at all. They won't feel any remorse for their sin. They'll feel only anger at God, and it'll only get worse than it was on this earth. They will gnash their teeth at Him forever forever. What's so terribly tragic about the men of the Sanhedrin is that these men did have the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. Not only had Jesus stood before these very same men at his trial, but God mercifully gave them the opportunity to hear about Christ from the lips of Peter, 
Who better than Peter, the apostles, and now Stephen? And yet these men grew harder and harder and colder and colder and madder and more upset until they exploded with such rage that they couldn't even articulate their anger but could only gnash their teeth at Stephen. Listen, let this be a warning to all who get upset and angry every time you hear the truth about Jesus. It means that you are growing harder and harder in your heart and moving closer and closer to the kind of fury that people in hell have towards God. And they'll never get over it. And unless you repent and turn to Christ for salvation, you will reach a point where you will be confirmed in your hardness of heart because God in his judgment will harden you to the point of no return. This is precisely what God did with the children of Israel. Those who rebelled against him in the wilderness, and he warns us to learn from them. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7, we read, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And then the writer to the Hebrews adds this for our benefit. Take care, brethren. By brethren, it doesn't mean Christian brethren. It means Jewish brethren. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So take care. Heed this warning and make sure that if you don't know Christ, you come to him immediately before your heart grows so hard that you cannot hear the words of conviction, the words of salvation. So today, if you do hear God's voice convicting you of your sin, commending Christ to you for salvation, your soul, then respond before you cannot respond. Listen, it's a horrifying thought, but true, that the men of the Sanhedrin are in hell today unless there were some who repented They're in hell today, still gnashing their teeth in fury at God, the way they did to Stephen. But while they were venting their frustration at Stephen, the Bible tells us that by way of contrast, Stephen was completely calm and serene. Notice verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. Of God. Now we read that while the men of the Sanhedrin were out of control, Stephen was under control and under control of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit. And while these men were venting their anger at him, God granted Stephen a most encouraging vision. We read that the Lord, as it were, he pulled back the curtains of heaven and let Stephen look in. And what Stephen saw when he looked in, he saw the glory of God meaning the Shekinah glory of God, which spoke of God's presence. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God, meaning God the Father. Now, it's interesting that we're told that Stephen saw Jesus standing at the Father's right hand rather than sitting. And I say it's interesting because in other places in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is seated at God's right hand, signifying that having given his life for the sins of his people, his work was done, finished, so he sat down. There are many places that speak of this, but perhaps the clearest is Hebrews 1.3, 
We read in he, speaking of Christ, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hands of the majesty on high. His work was finished, and he sat down. It's over. But here we read that Stephen saw Jesus standing, not sitting. So why is the Lord standing? Well, the text doesn't tell us. The text does not tell us why he was standing. But it is very likely that Jesus is standing to show his concern for his servant Stephen as the Sanhedrin just pour out their fury and that he has stood up in order to welcome Stephen to heaven, to glory, because in a very brief time, that is where Stephen is going to be. What an incredible thought that when we die, the Lord Jesus welcomes us to heaven. Today on our verse-by-verse broadcast, we had a study in contrasts. As I mentioned at the start of today's program, the religious leaders were about to become very angry with what Stephen had to say to them about their sin. They weren't a very repentant bunch, I guess we could say. But while their anger grew, Stephen remained calm. The Bible said he was full of the Holy Spirit. One other thing that really gripped me in Acts chapter 7, verse 55, is that he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Oh, wow. That must have been overwhelming. We're about out of time. I'm sorry. But if you would like to go back and hear today's lesson again, surf on over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast. It's a great way to review what you heard on today's program and maybe catch a few things you might have missed. That's versebyverseradio.org. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.